Everybody that knows me well knows the one thing I hate is uh, breaking up good conversation, whether it's at our Wednesday meal or here. But we do believe that part of our worship is not just songs and sermons, but a deep part of it that oftentimes the church misses is this turning in. Um, We never want to be in a position where we're uh, drawing people into a show just to watch and go home. That's not the church. The church is flesh and blood, this temple that comes together. So it's so important these times. And so that's why I want to give time kind of partway through the gathering, but as well after to just uh, engage each other, meet meet one another. It's good. Everybody doing okay? Hanging in there. I think we're just about a month away from, is it month today? Month tomorrow from Christmas. Some of you are excited. Some of you are like sweating now under your arms. You're welcome for that anxiety. It's uh, my joy to just put that on you this morning. Um, here's the deal. We have been in, this is week 12 of a long series called From Redemption to Recycling. And we have just basically this fall put everything under the, on the table. We put everything on the table, basically saying that there's no question or topic off bounds. We want to wrestle through it all. From sex to power to politics to money to the creation accounts to climate change and so on. Everything is at your disposal there online. But I just want to say this. Before we jump into this final week, how thankful I am for this community, and I'll probably say it at the end as well. I was with some pastors this week, and most of these guys are in pretty traditional settings, and they were just talking about how sometimes it's hard to bring people along in some of these ideas and forge the church forward. I would say the most of the pastors I was with this week were pretty discouraged, and then I got thinking about you guys and just the openness to be able to do this kind of stuff and thought, man, I, we, Heather and I say this over and over, how blessed we are to be in an environment where we can just talk about this stuff and wrestle through and push forward. So I want to say thank you to you guys. Um, we are, and we open with this, we are in the wake of a shallow church. I often talk and, and say, you know, sometimes churches can be marked by three things. Um, God has a plan for your life, which is true. He wants to do great things through you, which is absolutely true, and then bring your friends to church next Sunday, which is true, but for a lot of communities, that's kind of where it ends. And and then all of a sudden, you're a Jesus follower for like six or seven or eight months, and you realize there are all sorts of questions about all sorts of things, and we have to peer deep into these things. And so I just want to say how thankful we are for you guys and that we can do this. This morning's going to be really light and easy. We're going to answer three particular questions. Can women be pastors and elders? That was a joke, by the way. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. We're going to talk a little bit about how the church in the wake of the Me Too movement should respond and wrestle through that. And then we're going to talk about something really simple like spiritual beings, like are angels, demons, and the Satan really legit? So, well, you know, you're glad, I'm sure you're glad you've come this morning. No correlation between women pastors and angels and demons, I promise, okay? It's just we had to, we, we're out of time. This is, supposed to be the, this is supposed to be the last teaching, but honestly, we're not going to get everything in. We don't have a gathering next Sunday because of our Christmas party, so we're going to drop one more on things like predestination and election. There's a few things around the Bible that we didn't get to that we'll just drop for you guys if you want to listen to that. So the question is this, can women be pastors and teachers in the church? Now, some of you have been around for a while, like the last five or six years, in kind of our journey in evolution as a community, you know that we have, we have touched this stuff a ton. This particular pa- 
passage. These particular passages and this particular topic has actually been a real deep passion of mine. So some of this, you're going to be like, man, we've heard this, we've talked about it. Others of you are new. But actually, when we come to this question, it's actually, and I want you to lean in with me, it's bigger than can women be pastors and teachers in the church. This question actually is a formative question in how I want to teach us and lead us to actually read and interpret the Bible. So this is a legit question, but even bigger, the overarching thing is some of you guys know we have these sacred texts, which I believe hold authority, and they say some things that may be counter to even the way we practice But how do we interpret some of these ancient texts that go on? Because here's the thing. The Bible actually says at face value that women can't speak and lead and teach and be elders in the church. Throw them up for me, okay? We're going to put two passages, the two major prohibitions kind of back to back. These are the two major texts that honestly egalitarian, or sorry, complementarians, those folk that would believe that women cannot teach and preach and lead as elders in the church, they come to this. Here's what they say. It's pretty, it seems pretty clear, right? First prohibition is 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Paul says, and these are both Paul, by the way, so you can just duke it out with him. I know there's courses at Brescia where he just gets torn apart, but hang with me. I will come to the defense of Paul in just a second here. Verse 34, 14. Uh, Pretty simple, right? Women should remain silent in the churches. And Heather's in kids' church this morning. This is a good one, right? Yes. By the way, I'll just say, be very weary of men who want to dominate these texts over women. Just for, we'll get into it. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they were to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For, this is legitimately what he says. This is the interpretation in English. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, Paul. Then, another letter. This one's not as much corporate, but is to a younger understudy. His name is Timothy. Timothy was the bishop in this church in Ephesus, which was one of the major churches in the ancient Mesopotamian. And he's writing to him, trying to get him to help Timothy with... Remember, this is a whole freaking new world. We have 2,000 years of history to get where we are. This is fresh for these communities. Paul says this to Timothy. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission... I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. And just with emphasis, she must be quiet. Okay. So there you have it, right? The Bible says it. I believe it. And that settles it, right? Right? But yeah. (laughs) Nobody wants to comment. No comments. Okay. So what if I told you that there are things that are commands, not in the the Old Testament, because we know Jesus comes with this um, interpretation of the Old Testament and it fulfills it. But what if I told you there are commands in the New Testament about women that we don't take seriously in our moment, even if you are somebody here who's a complementarian, and you're so welcome here, that take these particular texts seriously that women should not preach and be pastors in the church. What if I told you there's actually... Other things that we don't take seriously that are commands in the New Testament that we don't do now. This is one of the contentions, and this is my thesis. We've either got to take it all seriously around this idea of women not being pastors, as Paul says, 
Like everything he commands, and we're going to get into other things he commands that we don't take seriously, we either have to take it all or we have to work hard to interpret it. And you know that we've obviously here taken option B in the 21st century, thousands, millennia later, um, to understand this, right? There are other things that we do not take seriously. For example, just chapters before, Paul says to the church in Corinth that women should be silent and should not speak. He says this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. But every woman who prays or prophesies. So the context here is, and by the way, the church in Corinth was meeting in homes. They had a triclinium and an and atrium. The, they had, it was around a meal together. They would have this symposium-like stuff after. And really, the whole church was to participate. It wasn't like people sitting in rows watching somebody with a Britney Spears mic teach. It was fully participating participatory, people would uh, come with meals and they would eat together and they would talk. And Paul says, when the women prophesy, so we know women are actually speaking in the church. Listen to what he says. Uh, When a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, it dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head and of her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Sounds intense, but what, and we know this. Head coverings are a thing even in the Middle East now. They're, they're still a thing. We are a much different culture than when this was written and the cultures around us in the world. But Paul says, if you're going to prophesy as a woman or you're going to pray in the church, you need to have your head covered. Now, for us, we're like, what? Like, are you, yes, at the door, by the way, next week when you come in, we will have, have, have coverings for all the ladies. No, obviously not. But it's not crazy to them because actually in an honor-shame society, women wore head coverings, and that was the honorable thing in our, their culture then. So this is a message that builds up, uh, uh, prophecy is a message that builds up or really comforts the church. So Paul says, when the women speak, and this is what's happening in the church, women would come with a word to build up the church and comfort the church. That's what I believe prophecy is. And by the way, we are very open to this, actually. If you have a word which you believe would comfort and build up the church, because that's the qualification for prophecy, we would really love for that to happen. One of the things we say here is come see myself or one of the lead team. If God is speaking, male or female, we want to bring this. We're very, very open to this because this is the way the church works. Uh, another side note, by the way, community is really one of the best places for prophecy, like Praxis communities, where you're in smaller communities around tables. That's where I feel like, honestly, I know I'm the teaching voice here, but where there's opportunity to like, really share with what God's put on my heart for certain people. So we're very open to that. But we have to wrestle through. One of the commands is to wear head coverings. And this command, we don't take seriously. Like even complementarian reformed churches don't practice this. They don't practice this now. They will say, listen, woman cannot speak and teach. But I'm always like, yo, let's, let's take the whole thing here. What about the, the head covering peace. And when women are to prophesy in the church here in this context, they're to have their heads covered. It's interesting that most complementarian churches leave little or no room for prophecy, and so it becomes easy. But when a woman prophesies, Paul says, in that church, they have to have their head covering. Anyone doing that? Is anybody doing, like, I'm just, you know, is anybody doing this? 
Because here's the thing, you're being, here's the thing, if you don't take it all, right, you're being disobedient to scripture if you don't do that, if that's the framework you come from. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? We're not taking the whole thing seriously. We're taking bits and pieces of what Paul says. You want to go even deeper? Oh, I know you do. Some of your ladies are like, yes. These are the days where it's amazing. At the back, the ladies will come up and be like, this was great. And I'm like, just thank you. It just feels really good to, you know, build my ego, you know. Uh, First, First Timothy 2. So, First Timothy 2 there, we just took the snippet. A woman should learn in quietness and submission. They should basically be quiet is what Paul is saying. Now listen, exactly the same passage, just two verses earlier, all right? So complementarians, people who say women can't teach and preach, they go right here. Listen to what it says right before women should be quiet. Verse 9, it says this, I also, you were listening? I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. But I want them to be with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Everybody wants to hone in on a woman should learn in quietness and submission. Nobody is talking about the two verses before where Paul talks about modest dress, There's to be no elaborate hairstyles, no gold, pearls, or jewelry, and no expensive clothing. Heather, where are you at, yo? Our budget is going to get way better on our clothes budget. Anybody with me? I'm joking, by the way. Please, please understand I'm joking. She purposely went in kids today for this one, right? So here's the thing. In the name of the Bible, we say woman can't teach. And yet the Bible has very clear instructions that they're not to wear these things and do these things, and come with makeup, and, and jewelry, and expensive clothings, and yet in our moment, we do not take these things seriously. So I know a guy, I recently saw a picture, it was actually on Easter, I know a guy who writes and podcasts tons about the complementarian position, about women not speaking and teaching, he's actually in some ways kind of been divisive about it, really hard on churches like us that would affirm women in leadership, always going after on social media people like this, and yet here's the thing, on Easter, guess what I saw? Outside the auditorium of their church, a beautiful picture on Easter Sunday morning with him and his wife and his family, and guess what she had on? Expensive clothes, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. Just tell me what I saw. There was, exp- yeah, you're like, yeah, you are, <laughs> maybe. I saw a lot of expensive clothes, a really nice outfit, which I'm for. I love that. Fashion's amazing. Uh, jewelry, hair to the T, and this was accepted. Now, women can't teach in the church, but we don't necessarily have to take everything else seriously in these texts. What I'm here to do is just point out a little bit of the inconsistency. If you want to be consistent, you have to take the entire thing, which means women would, again, have to wear head coverings when they prophesy and pray. They can't have elaborate clothes, hair, jewelry, makeup, and so on, and they wouldn't be able to teach. All I'm lobbying for is that we read this stuff in context. And one of the questions we have to ask is, why from the creation account, which names male and female, which to us is not mind-blowing because we live in an egalitarian society. But for the Hebrew creation account, which is our creation account, to name male and female, and all the way through, 
uh, supportive laws in the Old Testament around women not being degraded or taken advantage of. All the way through to Jesus' teaching and his disciples, I hate to break it to you, but um, we talk about the 12 disciples, but really those 12 men were a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus had a lot of disciples, and you should just read it. A lot of them were women, which was unthinkable for a mid-Eastern uh, uh, rabbi. You know, it's interesting that there's actually context around why Paul would say no in certain examples. So I'm, I'm presenting here, take it all or, or wrestle through it. Do you want to wrestle through what I think a couple things are going on here that we should take consideration of? One, I believe Paul had mission in mind with these prohibitions. What do I mean by that? I think Paul, for example, with the head coverings, would say to people, to women, that is dishonorable in your culture and in your society not to wear a head covering. Why would you do that? It, it defames the mission of Jesus, right? So for example, today, N.T. Wright puts it like this. It's like a woman coming to the public gathering here in her wedding dress or me coming up and teaching in a Speedo. And you're like, that is, bad. That is a bad image right now. In my, it should be a bad image in your head because <laughs> you're like, let's pray on that one and go home. All right. Um, <laughs> Because there's social cues in our culture that we play by, and one of the social cues in the first century world was a head covering. I'd also say this, ladies, if we sent you out, one of you was like, I am super passionate, I want to go to Saudi Arabia, and I want to take the gospel there, and I want to go there and be a missionary. What we would probably do is we would probably say, you should wear a head covering, right? Because in Saudi Arabia, it's still an honor-shame society there. They, the women wear head coverings. You would probably, if you want any kind of input into that culture with the gospel, you would want to wear a head covering. That's what Paul is doing. Now, we live in a culture where we have all sorts of liberties with women. I'm super thankful and so excited for this. To have a daughter in this moment is really beautiful. It's interesting that we have women in our church that have PhDs. Uh, we have a woman in our church, amazing gal, that teaches like hundreds, I think, of nurses um, in, in a particular program. Uh, I just, I, not to degrade anybody here, but it's interesting that in our particular community, and this is not to degrade any males in this community, our community actually, because uh, we have this thing called Planning Center, and we pray, I pray for this community by name, and as we're praying for people, I just got looking at education backgrounds, and it's actually true of our community that the women in our community have higher education as a whole than men in our community, and that's okay. That's not like pinning men and women against each other. It's just to show you we're in a culture that's very educated, and the women play a, a huge part. And then we take something that's cultural, and some, some guys are laughing, dang it, right? But we, we're in a moment that's very cultural here that opens the doors for women in these areas, and then we take a text from a certain moment and say they can't do that. I think you've got to take the whole thing as a whole. So for example, in Corinth, Paul says to the church there that you shouldn't speak. This verse here, I think, because there were dynamics going on in that church. This passage in 1 Corinthians 14 is right in the midst of the order of worship. Because there's all sorts of chaos going on in Corinth. Brand new church. Most of them are Gentiles, so they're not followers of Yahweh originally. They're coming to Jesus. They're meeting in a little home church, probably 20 or 30 of them. And there's all sorts of craziness going on. Leadership schismas, where some like Paul, but 
most of them like this guy named Apollo who can speak really well. They're like, Paul, your words are weighty, but listen, as, a, as an appearance, they don't even like how he looks and how he communicates. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. You think the Bible's boring? It's in there. Just read it. Like, Jerry. In our house, my dad's name was Gary. We always went, Gary, 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 right? And so one of the things that's going on is there's chaos in worship, especially in a small, probably quarters in which they meet. And one of the things you get the sense, and most scholars believe Paul is saying, listen, they can't speak right now because women are speaking across the room because women and men would have sat culturally on opposite sides of the room. I actually did a teaching on this text and had male and female sit on opposite sides. And what was happening is the females were shouting over to the males about questions about theology. Remember in that culture, women are not learned. They're not, if you're a Jew, as a woman in the first century, you are not allowed to learn Torah. Like we've come a long way, friends. And so Paul here, I think, and I agree with many scholars in the Corinthian passage, the Corinthian prohibition is about bringing order. Don't yell across, but save it for home. And mostly in that culture, males were learned and could provide some of the answers theologically around what was going on. Does that make sense? I think actually that's not twisting scripture. We hold scripture to high authority, as high as you can get. But I just think there's something going on here that the whole Bible is affirming women and then he would say, don't speak. Why? Why is that? Well, that's, I think, a great example. The Timothy passage, I fr- you don't have to believe this. I'm not gonna push this on you. But I believe, uh, Paul says to Timothy here, a a woman should learn in quietness and submission and also adds the prior stuff about jewelry, dress, and all that kind of stuff. Because if you know anything about Ephesus, and this is where it was written, there was one of the wonders of the world. And that wonder of the world was the temple of Artemis. She was a goddess. People would travel the known world to come and worship in her temples. Um, the massive temple in Ephesus, the way you'd worship, I know it's grotesque and gnarly, I know there's no kids in here, which is good, but the way you'd worship is not just like, I praise you, Artemis, I'm gonna sing a, we're gonna get Spence in the band to sing a few songs to Artemis. You literally would sleep with temple prostitutes. It became a feminist cult in that moment where you would go and literally, you talk about whole body worship, that was whole, whole freaking body worship in that moment. Now what was happening is Artemis, if you read in, I think, I think it's Acts 17, when Paul goes into Ephesus, the whole economy is built on Artemis. It's like going to Disney World and they have like engraved things of Disney and all. All of a sudden people are turning to Jesus and the whole economy flips upside down and people are upset because they were making wooden figures and different stone figures to the goddess Artemis. I mean, the whole, if you read the story, the whole city turns upside down. What I think Paul is saying, with all that said, what I think Paul is saying is let's not let the church become a feminist cult. Are we okay with that? Please, are we okay with that? I think we're okay with the church not in that moment and now, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, I think we are okay with the church not becoming a feminist cult. And that was right on their doorstep. So there may be things on our doorstep, but that's the worship to Artemis over, you know, on Dundas Street is not our issue right now, but it was for Timothy in that world. I think the prohibitions are there because of certain reasons. And then you have to wrestle with the entire story. How central the woman, uh, the story of women are to the Bible. And I could go on and on, I don't have time. We can post other teachings that I've done. A few years ago, somebody told me, you should read the Gospel of Luke in light of woman. I think I read it in one setting and I had to pull myself off the floor. 
if you read it in light, you begin to see Luke is writing, not just to show the work of the Spirit, but what God is doing through women as disciples. Mary and Zechariah are kind of pitted against each other in the very first chapter. This old school wise man doesn't receive the message of Jesus very well, and this little peasant girl named Mary from the backwoods in Galilee does. And from there, Luke goes, open your eyes to the whole story. To the very end, who's at the tomb? Not the men. They're like hiding. They're in the basement playing Xbox somewhere. Are you with me? And it's the apostle of the apostles, Mary Magdalene, who's at the tomb with Jesus, the first apostle to the apostles, and so on. You've got to wrestle through Lydia. The whole church in Philippi was built on her back. She was a wealthy woman who owned a business, who did great things. To Junia, this woman named Junia, who was a, an apostle um, in the church. It says in Romans, to Phoebe, if we didn't have Phoebe, we would not have the letter of Romans get to where it needed to get. It was on the back of Phoebe where that letter got to. And I just think it's, uh, it's really important to just take all of that into consideration. Why is the whole story saying one thing and then Paul saying no in a couple of spots? And I think this is a pattern because it's bigger than just the woman issue in scripture because people will say, no, no, it says it. We need to point to the whole thing. But I'll also say, this is a hermeneutic and at, by hermeneutic, I just mean a good way of reading, interpreting the Bible. So if they're from Genesis to Revelation, and people will ask questions about, I don't know, ethics or human sexuality or all sorts of things in our moment, you got to ask the question, is the whole story saying one thing and then there's prohibitions? Well, in this case, the whole story is affirming women in this, in this light, and then it says, no, you have to ask why. We need to take the whole story into account when we come to these issues. And so just we need to think deeply about these things. I'm not pushing on this. I'll just say this. If you bend from a more complementary kind of position, I am totally uh, okay with that. We are totally, uh, that's great. That's amazing. My thing is just that we would consider the whole thing. Do we have to then go to head coverings? Do we have to then not have women wear cl like clothes that you're wearing? Because even in the world context, our, all of our clothes are very expensive in comparison to the rest of the world. Like, do we have to shift the whole thing? I don't think so. I think we need to take it seriously. Beautiful. Love you guys. Thanks for hanging in. Yeah, I know you just love this. Next one is this. We doing okay? You all right? Me too. Some folk have asked over time about just the Me Too movement, uh, you know, how this thing has exploded the last few years. I think the uh, a guy named Harry, what's his name? Harvey Weinstein got uh, the ball rolling with some things in Hollywood. And over the last few years, there has been a voice to the prevailing misogyny and uh, sexual abuse and abuse in culture towards women. I'm not going to be long. I was long on the first question. I'm not going to be long with this. People have asked, so how do we approach this as the church? I think with what's happened, there's no scripture and verse for this. Paul wasn't like, okay, in 2,000 years, there's going to be this technological revolution where everybody's going to get a smartphone in their hand and everybody's going to have a say and it's going to be beautiful. Um, so I think we just need to think with general wisdom with this. I'll say this. There's something beautiful about the uncovering of injustice. There's something beautiful about the uncovering of injustice. So I took some time in seminary and studied the sexual revolution. And I think we could, I think most of us, you may disagree with me on this, and I'm okay with that. The sexual revolution has spun things out of control. 
And now we live in a society and in a moment where even sex was more communal. And I don't mean like, yeah, I don't mean everybody was doing it together. What I mean is sex held a higher value within relationships, particularly within the, the context of marriage and community and how the community supported that. Uh, the sexual revolution came along. Hey, man, be free. This idea, I think Charles Taylor calls kind of this age of authenticity. Be your true self. Do what you want to do. Don't worry, it doesn't affect anybody as long as it's kind of consensual and it's two adults doing something consensual. But it's led us to a moment where obviously sexual abuse has been covered up. And so there's something about the Me Too movement that is actually beautiful in uncovering the way people have been treated and what's happened and the story forward. I will caution, I will caution in all of this, that we have to be careful of someone being guilty before having the opportunity to defend themselves. So we live in a moment where we should listen and we always talk here at Praxis, we want this community, we do everything we can to make this community the safest place on the planet. We put every measure in place. But we also have to give an opportunity for people to defend themselves before they're, they're kind of pronounced guilty because there is potential and it's just true, of false accusations. If you read through this moment, it's beautiful because injustice has been uncovered, but listen, let's not put it past ourselves as humans to uh, falsify things. So I'll say the beauty of it is we live in a moment where I, I think we should lean into the reality of uncovering injustice. In all areas of life, the church should be a place where we point to the inconsistencies. And what can be happening, what could be happening through all of this is that some progressive, and I'm not even talking political progressive, I'm just talking about some progressive ideas may just be turning in on themselves, right? And the Me Too movement has helped almost turn some of these progressive ideas in on themselves. So there's been a lot of discussion through the Me Too stuff around the idea of consent. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Don't you find it interesting? Um, I know it was a little bit of hyperbole, but some people were joking through this. Like, so because we live in kind of a one-night stand, have a couple dates, and then sleep together culture, some people have been in and through that kind of pushing to the idea of, well, what does consent mean? And even getting hyperbolic to the point of, well, do you know, on the first date, do you bring like a binder with you and like actually hand out papers and sign yourself away for this cons consensual stuff? It's interesting that some of these ideas have, have turned in on themselves. It's interesting with consent because, and I know I may sound like a charlatan and a little old school, but it is an interesting question. What is, what is consent in our moment when it comes to sex? Traditionally, the church has held that consent to one another is this crazy idea of male and female, man and wife, getting in front of their friends and family and publicly and communally actually declaring to one another that they're giving their lives to one another, not just, not just in soul and not just in practice, but also their bodies together. And that idea is obviously a little lost in our moment, but I actually think it's interesting how the Me Too movement has pushed towards consent. What does this mean? There's lots of articles, if you've read them, about actors, male actors, comedians that basically preyed on females to get them to a certain spot after dates, and you can, I'm sure many of you guys have read this. And then the church comes along with this, this idea that this idea of consent is giving one another through covenant. 
Now listen, I know there can be abuse. Listen, listen to what I'm not saying. There can be obviously abuse in marriages. But consent, for those of us that follow Jesus, is this moment where we stand before friends and family and say, I'm giving, uh, I think it was June 30th. Anybody there? June 30th, help me out. I think my anniversary is June 30th, 2007. Marco was right there beside me. Few, few men down, it was good. You know, as I was sweating, I made this commitment to Heather that we would give our entire lives, our bodies, our soul, everything towards each other. And the discussion around consent that the Me Too movement has opened up is, I'll just say, it's, I don't, you don't have to agree with me, I just think it's really interesting. In a Jewish wedding, you would get married under the upa. The bed sheet on four posts, it was basically a sign of God's presence, his Shekinah. And you may think this is crazy, but it was so communal. It wasn't like this these autonomous thing. Obviously, even marriage in that context was very communal, that they would then take them under the upa to the bride room, the bride and groom room, and they would consummate their marriage. I know you're like thinking this is crazy, but this is what they did. They would consummate their marriage as a sign of consenting and giving their lives to one another. And then they'd come out and everybody would cheer. That is weird. We don't have to go back to that. I'm just telling you, there was a worldview that didn't pit sex as an individual thing. And sex has become very individualized in our culture. And you can do whatever you want, and fair enough. But now we live in this moment, and we have to ask the question, how did we get here? And what does it even mean to consent to somebody else? Anyways, I'm sure, I don't know. That's my two cents. No scripture and verse for that. This, the final thing is this. Final question is just around spiritual beings in the Bible. A little bit of a turn, all right? We're going we're gonna, to, I think the band would say, we're going to slow this one down. No? You got a, con- got a concert? We're just going to take a second and it's not slow at all, actually. A lot of people have asked, what the heck is going on with Satan Angels, demons, some of you read through Ephesians with us and you hear of this thing called the cosmic powers. And you're like, what? I live, in, I live in light of the enlightenment and we can see everything under a microscope and how does this all work together? If you were with us in the Ephesians series, I'm going to repeat myself a little bit, but I think some further things need to be said. The whole arc of the Bible pits us as humans on a stage with fellow actors who are not human. From page one to all the way to the final page, the Bible shows a narrative that we as humans are, it's not just God and humans, but there are spiritual beings at play. The scripture constantly acknowledges that spiritual beings and the powers or spiritual forces are at play in history and in the history of the world, and that they're actually something that is relevant and active in our current reality. So if you open up your Bible, you ever want to read it, Genesis 6 was the foundational text, the Hebrew text, for the fall of the cosmic rulers, or what the Bible would call the gods. Many scholars actually believe that the sons of God are, when it says sons of God in the Old Testament in Genesis, are the cosmic rulers that were actually given authority over creation to rule on God's behalf. So, so throughout the Hebrew scriptures, these spiritual beings, things like angels, demons, the Satan, and so forth, are actually called Elohim. Can you say Elohim? Do you know what Elohim is actually translated as? Anybody? Sometimes it ends up in our song. Elohim in our songs, Elohim is actually translated God in our Bible. 
it's like the Hebrew scriptures present to us the reality of Elohim, like the true, the one, the almighty God, Yahweh. And then there's these little gods, these spiritual powers, these like lowercase g gods. Yes, there's only one God, and God is the creator of all things, all nations. And, um, but the Elohim are these little gods. Psalm 82, actually, and we've read it here before, the psalmist depicts the creator God as entering, so Yahweh, entering into the heavenly council and addressing these figures. And he actually calls these lowercase gods. He says, you are gods, these spiritual beings. So Genesis 6. You know the story, they rebel. These cosmic powers rebel against Yahweh. Now that these angelic figures have fallen and become corrupted, they no longer carry out their mission and commission with God to rule with him. That was God's plan for the powers, was to rule over the nations with him. They no longer rule in order to foster peace and ensure justice. They no longer rule on behalf of God, but perpetuate evil and work against God and his good work in the world. So in the worldview of Israel, the the Hebrews, these figures actually stand behind the idolatries of pagan nations. And I do think the scriptures show us that these fallen spiritual beings have influence in the world. They were created to co-rule with God. And now, uh, you can call me weird and out there. I mean, it's not probably the worst thing anybody's ever called me. But I do think sometimes we because of how physical and material and we got textbooks and smart people and an iPhone in our pocket and Google and just everything, we tend to just kind of in the West brush the spiritual powers off. But I think all around us, the spiritual powers are at play. There is a battle between Yahweh and his good plan for this world and the Satan and the fallen powers of darkness. And it is at hand. It's before us. Actually, the Greek term that's translated in uh, Ephesians for cosmic powers is this word kosmokrator, kosmokrator. And it's basically two words that come together, the world and to grasp. One theologian, his name's Bruce Longnecker, which is like the greatest name ever. When you read somebody's name sometime, you're like, my name is the lamest thing ever. Bruce Longnecker, that is like, I'm changing it. $100 could change that for some of us, maybe, I don't know. He suggests that, this idea of cosmocrator, the cosmic powers, is best viewed as these powers grasping for God's good world. Grasping, bringing, they don't care about the self-destruction, they don't care how to get there, they are grasping for control and power over God's good world. And they use all sorts of strategies. And I know it's, again, in our Western world, it's hard for a lot of us to see But listen, the powers manifest themselves in evil ways all around us. Here's what Tim Gomba says. We will close with this, brothers and sisters. He says, for Paul, who talks a lot about this, therefore, the powers and authorities were originally created to play a legitimate role within creation, overseeing the social, cultural, and political aspects of national life. Yet they have rebelled, however, and now foster enslaving character of this present evil age, cultivating all the self-destructive patterns that are inherent in it. I can't agree with this more. So Heather and I, for the last number of years, um, myself in particular, are very passionate about a ministry that we contribute to. I'm on the board of this ministry. We do a ton of work in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And if you've ever read on the nation of Haiti, it's just been a disaster 
uh, basically since an inception. It started with brutality through colonialism. And even if you know right now, the last, like, so uh, involved with this ministry, we give, we have sponsored kids who are really passionate about ministry in this country. Uh, if you know anything, you've been reading the news, the last three weeks, once again, and it seems like every year there's a turn. The last three weeks, our kids in our schools that we sponsor and build there are not in school because once again, there's a government the people are at odds with the government. The government is not doing good things and are not for the people. And for hundreds of years, over and over, it feels like this culture has kind of, they're coming for you, Levi. This is Levi. When we hear sirens, I always say they're coming for you, and he just thinks it's funny. Um, listen, what's happening in Haiti obviously manifests itself through humans, but I believe the cosmic powers are at play in enslaving that country. Because there's been more aid given than ever. There's been more stuff, and we continue. We'll, Heather and I will do that till we die. We love, we love it. But it's just interesting. It's not just that humans are acting in a certain way. That's part of it. But I firmly, you can call me crazy, weird, charismatic, crazy, whatever. But I've just seen it enough to see that the cosmic powers are behind a lot of the rebellion and the enslaving characters that have happened there. And there are self-destructing patterns that go, I believe, way beyond humans. Gombus goes on, he says this, they no longer function, these powers, so that the nations come to fear and worship the Most High God, but they enslave the nations. They pursue a strategy that prevents humanity from carrying out its mission to be the image of God in the earth. The powers orient the cultures of the world so that humanity will develop patterns of sin, enslaving them in spiritual death. Their aim is destruction and the enslavement of humanity. When Paul talks about the powers and authorities in Ephesians, therefore, he has in mind the superhuman cosmic rulers. And so all I would ask for our community, I'm not asking you to be crazy, thank God. I'm just asking us to be aware that spiritual warfare is legitimate. It's legit. And again, you can pull out your microscope and think, well, it's just everything we need to see under a microscope. But then you travel the world like some of us have and you see the evil and the injustice. Even in our own city, there's things that go on. And you go, this is not just about what we can see under a microscope. There are powers at play. But I just always want to remind us, we always posture ourselves then from a position of victory. One, we know the end of the story. And as Paul would say, the powers are just grabbing for straws. They know their time is coming to an end. Jesus is going to come and renew and restore and remove the hostile cosmic powers against his will and his plan. And so we always should be living this out as Jesus followers because we have the Holy Spirit from a position of victory because we win. They're just grabbing for straws. They're just in their last moments. It's like D-Day and uh, V-E Day. D-Day, the Allies, I think it was June 6th, right, we celebrate, won and basically came on the shores of Normandy. But you also know there was about a year and a bit of fighting before V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. That's the time that we're in right now. We are living between D-Day, when Jesus defeated the cosmic powers on the cross, and V-E Day, when he will come and return and renew all things. And, and the battle is not just won. The whole, the whole thing is won. The whole thing is over, and he will renew this world. So that's the story that we've got to hang on. How are we doing? We doing all right? Okay, so we're going to post some stuff next week about election, predestination, and free will. We'll talk about violence in the Bible. There was questions about that. And what is the Bible? We'll take a few minutes. All I want to say is this. 
Thank you for hanging in there. These teachings we know have been super long. Some of them, like we rolled back, we're like, dear Lord. Some of them were like between 45 and 50 minutes, which is not normal, but we needed the time to kind of wrestle through some of this stuff. There has not been a greater series that we've done in our context that has gotten feedback and just wrestling with people, even in our own community over the last few weeks, the discussion around this stuff has been so good. We started with a posture, we don't have it all together, and we end with a posture, listen, we're wrestling through this. I'm not picking a fight with people that believe women can't preach and teach. We just want to open this up and look through these things, I think, in context. But let me just say this, so I'm thankful for that. Let me just say this. Only Jesus can do this stuff. Only Jesus can renew all the smorgasbord of things that we've talked through. Uh, I was telling somebody at our community meal on Wednesday. I was reading about San Francisco this week and Silicon Valley. And, you know, in some ways, the technology bubble has tried to create, like, a societal utopian society, this utopia of living in a world free with technology and everything that's at our fingertips. So they're talk, the article's talking about the beauty. There's some beauty in that as far as what's at our disposal as humans. But then it also got talking about the city of San Francisco, that the very area where all of this beauty is happening and influencing the world, many are talking about the decline of San Francisco, Ho- homelessness, houselessness in San Francisco, the rise of... Um, injustice, people living on the streets, poverty. And I just got thinking as I read it, like, there you go. We can try with everything that we want to make this, like, utopian society just amazing. And yet only Jesus can do the full and total work of redeeming this world. I was just in uh, Seattle. Many of you guys know the best man for my wedding lives downtown Seattle. So I try and visit him a little bit uh, every couple of years, and that city is like, in many ways, is like heaven on earth. It is like the wealthiest city in the States, and the cars and the houses and the beauty of that city. And yet, I was there again this year, just a few weeks ago, and noticed there's more houselessness, more homelessness than I've ever, I've ever, ever seen here. And it's like, man, only, only Jesus can do this, Right? And so just let's keep this before us, that when we talk about social justice, I've said, Heather and I, we want to lead this church into the future. We will do whatever it takes to see the captive set free. I see our brothers and sisters at um, Salvation Army this morning, uh, open this morning, and I'm inviting people from the streets uh, for clothing and different things for the Christmas season. We will partner with whatever it takes. We've done more this year as a community than we ever have socially. And yet we also live in the tension. It's going to take the king to come and do the things that I can't just do by giving money and helping people. He's got to come and wipe every tear away. With climate control, I do everything as a family right now in our power. We're taking this very seriously. Just to think about the environment and God's good creation like we talked about. And yet also know, I cannot, just because I recycle, I can't do it all on my own. It takes the good king coming and renewing and restoring all things. And my prayer through all of this is that we keep Jesus before us.